Boom. Anton Stettner podcast number 46. It's January 16th, 2024. Two weeks into the new year. Here we go. And we've got some interesting things going on. Um, Our good friend Zillow coming out with some either good or whack information. So why don't you... uh, Break down this first article. So a Zillow survey says a growing number of homeowners are willing to sell, and that's going to ease this rate lock concern. So 21%, aka one in five, said that they'd be willing to sell sometime, maybe in the next three years. And of course, all of a sudden, Zillow comes out, they publish this data you have to kind of go and just put the brakes on everything. Where do they make money? They make money selling leads. Okay, what do they want? They want to sell more homes. They want more transactions to come through. Let's talk about what we're seeing in the real world. One, the Fed broke housing. We know this happened. Interest rates were too low for too long. So we've got people who have 3% mortgages, 2.75, 4% mortgages, who you say, hey, trade in on a 65 a seven or a six, and buy a new one, they go, no, my payment would you know, double, jump significantly. So what that's doing is that's creating this lock-in effect. What they were trying to imply in this survey was that the sellers are feeling more likely to sell. I don't believe that. I think it's going to take rates coming way back into the fives, maybe the fours, before we unlock that additional inventory. Personally, with the sellers that we're talking here in the Seattle Metro, what we're seeing with them is they're not going to trade that 3% in for a 6.5 because the jump in payment is too big. What we're actually seeing more of is, one, I'm not selling and I'm staying, or two, I'm just going to keep it as a rental. Because what happens is the consumer doesn't respond to a positive emotion. The consumer responds to a negative emotion. So these home sellers, when they, they have a rate that's 3%, and they go and look at a new mortgage in six and a half, they experience massive fear of loss. Like they're actually losing money today out of their pocket, like somebody's stealing something from them. So they can't emotionally bridge that gap between the 3% and the six and a half, even if they can afford it. So what they say is, oh, I'll stay, or oh, I'll just keep this property and keep it as a rental. So this supply that I think people are hoping from and they're hoping this rate lock will unthaw, is not coming yet. Not until interest rates get much lower. That was kind of all of my points on that. I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, on the note of Zillow trying to basically influence or motivate people to potentially list their homes and sell um, through this article, uh, another thing that, uh, you know, you didn't mention that I know as a homeowner if I'm going to upgrade or move somewhere, another reason why I wouldn't sell my current property and not only keep it, but maybe keep it way longer than I normally would is because not only am I potentially losing that really cheap interest rate and, you know, cheap money is something you don't want to lose, but the fees at these new um, home prices get astronomical. So agent fees, you know, the, the selling fees. I mean, you probably know better don't those almost become numbers that people are starting to consider when selling or maybe not selling that also influence it even more so than a decade ago because of what home prices are at? 
And can you kind of go through that if you had discussions? Because I'm curious, as someone that hasn't you know sold my house in a long time, um, what other sellers are saying to you in regards to those fees? Well, it's coming up extremely regularly because for conversation's sake, let's say they bought their home a decade ago, you know, and they paid three hundred grand for it, and today it's worth nine hundred grand, and they go, "Oh, I'm going to sell my nine hundred thousand dollar home, and I'm going to go to one point five. Well, the differences in these mortgages, one, is so significant that their payment shoots up, it causes the payment shock. So there's our immediate fear of loss. But then they go to exactly what you're talking about. How much is it going to cost me to sell this property? Well, it's going to cost you a big bag of money. It's expensive to buy and sell real estate. You literally don't want to transact real estate often unless you have a economically viable reason to do it or a life event. So as an investor... We don't just buy and sell because it's too expensive. But what happens is that traditional homeowner, they go, oh my goodness, this is going to cost me 8%, 9% in fees total to sell something. As they see that number, their brain still remembers when them as the young couple bought the house and they could barely afford it. And they go, wait a second, I paid 300 grand for this house. It's worth 900 grand now. And you want to charge me like 80 grand to sell it. That's like a third of what I paid for it. So this massive fear of loss, same thing kicks in. So that's keeping people trapped in these properties and not cycling up to the next one. So then they go, well, you know, the mortgage is so low. I could rent. I'd make $1,500 a month in cash flow. It makes sense for me just to go buy another one. So they just keep it as a rental in this example that I'm going through right here. Yeah. And so to me, it seems... Uh, like say you're used to selling one to $10 million houses because you're wealthy, right? So whether it's 1 million in 2010 versus maybe now it's, you know, three or 4 million and you're used to it. So 80 grand, you know, 200 grand is like whatever, you're wealthy. But there's these buyers that are middle class. They're seeing these big numbers. It's scaring them. Would you say this is correct in saying there's going to be this adjustment period? So in addition to the normal factors and variables that motivate or slow down the process of buying and selling and investing homes, there's also this weird adjustment to inflation. Bingo. And and that that was never a conversation back in the day. The sellers happen to wrap their mind around a whole new set of numbers. And it's kind of interesting. I would actually say the middle class seller is your easiest with the towards the lower end being hard because they're pinching every penny. And then also the luxury seller is still generally a penny pincher. And so the people who like are middle class and upper middle class seem to be kind of the easiest going, but the two end, ends of the spectrum are are the hardest that kind of hammer the the prices the most because also the thing that you run into especially you know in luxury properties quite often those people are business owners high net worth individuals high income earners so they're very astute and aggressive with their money that's how they got there okay and then at the other end of the spectrum they're forced to do that because they've got to pinch every penny in order to get there versus there's kind of like a happy medium between once again middle and kind of upper middle class where they're like we just want a bigger house yeah. 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 No, I when you say 80 grand, I'm just thinking about the average conversation with a potential seller. They're thinking 80 grand would buy me a nice truck. 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> that, like, that's, they're, they're like, I'd rather keep the house, rent him, get profit, yes. and that pay for that truck that I'm basically, you know, obviously it's paying for services and there's yeah. fees required to selling your home, especially through the typical traditional way. But man, uh, it, that's, that's another thing too, because people, you know, I was just at Costco. Yep. And I had what I would call a pretty lean shopping cart. It was not very full. I didn't have my kids with me, you know, asking me for different things. I wasn't with my wife who might like want to, you know, bruise and kind of like look down the aisles. It was just me. So I was like hustling. I had to get here. That still cost me 200 bucks. Yeah. My, I remember a time when $100 packed your cart. Like, yeah, it was like oh, over yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then literally it was just like, wow, this is kind of crazy expensive. And now a lean cart at Whole Foods, a Whole Foods uh, at Costco of all places. So, you know, everything from the grocery store bill to those yep. fees are coming into play. So let's get into next thing. Maybe the reason why inflation is a problem. Uh, the next topic, the Fed is out of their mind and why rate cuts are going to happen. So, I think the Fed was out of their freaking mind this week and they basically went into like this denial mode and I believe this is going to force rate cuts to happen. So let's, you know, the market responded too positively after Jerome Powell's last speech. So the Fed presidents have been coming out and they've been hammering us. And then, of course, this has caused rates to go up. So Fred Governor Chris Waller came out uh, yesterday and he said we should take a cautious and systematic approach when rate uh, when we begin cutting interest rates, a process that can start this year absent a rebound in inflation. Cool. Of course, PCE core 2%, that's their goal. He believes that they can get there. He said we're focusing now not on pushing down inflation, but rather on maintaining a balance between inflation and jobs. So there's a little bit of a mindset shift. But this idea that they should take a cautious and systematic approach to rate cuts, he was coming out and he was trying to basically tell the market, we're not cutting in March. Ignore that. We're the Fed. We're going to do what we want. You guys can just wait and see what happens. And then, of course, that caused treasuries to go up, which caused interest rates to go up. He said, our policy is currently restrictive. And we do believe that the number of rate cuts will depend on the incoming data. And all I can hear is Jerome Powell in the back of my head, based on the totality of the data, as long, quote unquote, as inflation does not rebound. And they said they will lower rates methodically and carefully. And I see, and I'm quoting him again, I see no reason to cut rates as quickly or as rapidly as we did in the past. BS. So, you can go to the Fed's website. You can look at the federal funds effective rate right on the St. Louis Fed website. And you can see every time as the Fed fund rate goes up, every time it comes crashing down right after, bam, 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 bam. The only time it didn't immediately fall or drop quickly, so sometimes they've raised slowly, but they've always cut quickly was right there in 1989, late 90, or late 80s, going into the 90s. Then we hit that recession right in the beginning of the 90s. Boom, massive rate cut real quick. So what he's saying to you is he's saying smoke and mirrors. 
This Fed president is saying this time is different, which you should always be weary anytime anyone says that. History is not going to repeat itself. Once again, be weary when they say that. And that we're not going to do it based on the totality of the data, and we're going to do this nice and slow. BS, you've never done it in the history. Okay, what does that mean? It means they know they're going to have to cut rates. It means that commercial real estate problem that we talked about before, where there's this impending doom coming because commercial debts on three-year notes, five-year notes, you know, seven-year notes, and they're starting to reset. And the multifamily that you bought at a three cap now needs to be a five cap, and it was a 3% rate, and it's now going to be a six or a seven. That's going to require a cash-in refinance. So the Fed knows they're going to have to cut, but they're trying to cool the market with their words. I listen to this, and I'm literally like beating my hands against my head. Like, dude, you're lying to us. Like, you're, you're literally lying. Like, you, you know it's different, but based on the totality of the data, we are going to cut slow and methodically, yet you've never done it in history. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm going to save that clip and I want to see when that uh, comes true because that'd be pretty crazy. Are we going to put bets on it and yeah. put it in the book? <laughs> the book's going to get thicker. Uh, this goes right into our, our next thing that we're going to talk about. What's interesting is while the Fed's fighting inflation, and we've mentioned this before, but we have to bring it up for the people who are just joining us, is this idea that the that the Federal Reserve is fighting inflation while we are still stimulating the economy. So it's, we're, we're on this weird teeter-totter. So there is a $78 billion deal. This is a massive stimulus package that could also boost real estate that's being proposed right now. This proposal is by uh, Jason Smith of the House Ways and Means Committee. He's a Republican and John Wyden, a Senate finance chair, Democrat. They said they've been in negotiations for months over the $78 billion tentative deal. This bill has not yet been passed. I've got to throw that out there. But it looks like it's going to at uh, later on this month. And what this is, is this, uh, and this is right from their, uh, the website, this is a three-year proposal that would help families spur innovation improve economic competitiveness, and boost affordable housing. Ooh, we like all of that, okay? But realize this is economic stimulus while the Fed is still fighting their fire. Goals to have it finalized by the end of January. And here's what they said. This is, this is like typical government 101. So we had the ERC credit, the employee retention credit. That's where a business could go and say, you know what, I was hit by the pandemic. I can then go get a tax credit for up to 50% of the wages for my employees that I did retain and the government incentivized them to retain. That program has seen a bunch of fraud, but there is reportedly about $70 billion left in that program. So here's where the government math comes in. The government goes, hey, we're going to save you guys $8 billion. Just watch this math. What we're going to do is we're going to kill off the ERC, the Employee Retention Credit, by the end of January. We're going to start this new bill. And it's only $78 billion, but we're saving $7 billion over here. So it's only $8 billion more. So it's like we're saving money. And those guys were a bunch of fraudsters anyway who were claiming late. So you know we need to get rid of the fraud. Only a government can do math like that. 
us as real estate investors, business owners, we can't. But ideally, this is all good for the real estate industry. This is awesomeness for the real estate industry. There's a couple things in here that we really need to dig into. So one, the first thing is the child tax credit. This is one of those things that helps everyone. So the child tax credit, they forced hire during the pandemic you know, once again, just to kind of help alleviate what was going on. The thing to understand about your child tax credit is it is a use it or lose it style credit. I use it. I use it too. Times five. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what's interesting. Even if you didn't have enough taxable income or you had other losses or other things that wrote down your taxable income, you would lose that those credit for those five children normally. What this is saying is this is saying you that credit would actually roll into the next year. Really? Really. Huh. Yes. And what they're doing is they're going to raise it. So it's going to be uh, 1600 at the lowest income level. Then it uh, goes to 1800 in 2023. And they're making it retroactive. 1900 in 2024, 2025 in 25 with a possible inflation bump of 2100 in 2025. This is great. This is one of those things where child tax credits help, generally speaking, all economic classes. And then they also help us to incentivize and allow people to have children because birth rates in the United States are going down. If we're a consumer economy, we got to have a lot of people. So we have to have it through births or immigration in order to keep our economy moving. So what's that have to do with real estate though? Well, we're getting there. Okay. Okay. I just want everyone to know that because that's probably the biggest part of this one. What it has to do with, so other expected ones are more Taiwan tax breaks, disaster tax relief. So this is for the areas that have been hit by the hurricanes and stuff like that. Now we're starting to get into the business ones, potentially greater deductions for business, interest expenses, machinery and equipment. This is one's for the small business people. So right now, if somebody Venmos you $600, you have to give them a 1099. This applies to people running little Etsy jobs, you know, uh, contractors, all small businesses. They're going to raise that to $1,000. That's a good thing. That helps out so many small business. Larger uh, credits for research and development, which of course helps the economy long-term and up to 100% deduction. Okay, now we're going to go into the real estate. So real estate people, if you haven't, hit the like button, subscribe, comment. This is the gold that you need to pay attention to. They're probably going to uh, take the 179 deduction and expand that to 100% write down and make that positive. And you go, okay, what's 179? 179 is where you get a write-off heavy equipment. So people for in real estate, when they use a truck or they go buy a track hoe or buy a dump truck or something of that nature, it was 80%. They're going to bump it back up to 100% write-off. So you go buy an $80,000 truck, like you had mentioned, so you get to write that truck off all in one year against the taxable income. This next one is actually for larger investors. So low income housing tax credits, they're called LIHTCs. What does that stand for? Low income housing tax credits. And these LIHTCs, generally speaking, had to be financed with 50% bonds. And so these are large multifamily projects. What they do is they go into an area and they get these bonds to finance their projects. And then that gives them an additional tax credit to help. What this bill will do is it'll allow that instead of a 50% threshold, 30%. So it'll open it up which could create, and I really hope it does, more low-income housing, which generally speaking is affordable rental housing. Our nation needs that. Our people need that. They need it because of inflation. 
They need it because of the lack of supply that's been driving up the price. Now, here's the the gangster one, okay? This is the one that probably our listeners care about the most. During the Trump era, what he got passed was the idea that you could cost segregate a piece of real estate and you could then take 100% bonus depreciation. And what that means is they would take a building or a duplex or a sixplex and they put together a cost segregation analysis. And instead of depreciating the whole over a really long period of time, you take items that can be depreciated quicker and you accelerate their depreciation. Well, what they said was those accelerated depreciation items could be written off at 100%, but that just went away. And then it dropped to 80%, and then it's going to drop to 60 This bill's going to bring it back up to 100 And you go, why is the government supporting commercial real estate, multifamily, and the economy again? What do they know? What are they seeing? Is this just like the Federal Reserve saying there might be a problem? This is exactly that. This is them saying, hey, we've got to make sure that we can prop up investing real estate, multifamily, office, commercial real estate, all those categories, because what this does is allows high net worth individuals to go buy real estate and get big write-offs on their taxes. This is one of the things that caused the big boom. This caused the syndication booms. This caused the joint venture booms. This is the reason, I know people don't like this, This is the reason some of these big hedge funds, the invitation homes of the world exist, because they can give these write-offs. This allows them to continue these write-offs. Okay, let's not make them just always the big bad bear. This also helps me and you. It helps the little guy too, who's just simply going to buy a duplex or that person who's going to keep their first house, move out of it because they got that low interest rate, do the second one as a rental. They could turn around and cost segregate that first house, take a bunch of 100% bonus depreciation, and take a big write-off. Can you um, explain it like in numbers, like use a house and then a family that's going to go into a house and then give a price and then how it affects their taxes? I know you're not accountant, but maybe to paint a picture there are, visually. Oh, I love it. I'm going to give you real numbers from a real property from one of our clients. Generally speaking, you go hire a tax segregation specialist. They do the analysis for you. They tell you the numbers. Then you give it over to your accountant. There's no specific methodology because it depends on the type of construction, the year of construction, the age of the carpet inside, and things like that. So we're talking in real generalities here. There were three duplexes that were purchased by one of our clients for $2,150,000. They did a cost segregation study on those three duplexes. The cost segregation study with 100% bonus depreciation gave them a $436,000 write-off. So what is that? Four out of 20, so that's 20%. So you might... Rough math, get a 20% write-off of the, of the whole value. Once again, it's going to depend on the type, what was being done to it. There's so many variables, but there are specialists who, who can help in that. Here's the moral of the story. We can connect you with those professionals if you contact us, and we can show you how to get big write-offs, because if you need write-offs, you need things like bonus depreciation. You need to figure out how to 
pay the tax man less. This is a game everyone needs to be playing. And uh, clarify a couple things. The the reason the hedge funds benefit from this, and it's in maybe a way people don't understand, the bonus depreciation, the write-off is more valuable for the organization and the clients because they're dealing with way bigger numbers and potentially tax bills. So they're dealing with, generally speaking, high net worth individuals. You know, so most hedge funds will only take money from an accredited investor so that they meet a certain criteria. So as that money comes in, what's happening is that person generally needs write-offs. Well, the investment produces a higher return if not only do I give you an asset, but I give you cash flow and I give you appreciation, but then I give you a big smack of depreciation write-off right up front that increases the return. Well, if you're giving me a better return, I'll give you more money. Yeah, and then the mom and pop investor can still also take advantage yes. of this too because they're going to benefit from the 100% depreciation. My last question on this is, you said that's what put us into this situation to a certain degree in commercial real estate. Yes. Won't this make it worse? Won't this kick the can down the road even more? The whole government appears to be continuing their punt maneuver like we talked about previously. They should be in the NFL. It's not going to make it worse because interest rates are not 3% again. But if interest rates, because there are people predicting that we'll hit the threes or the fours. So if interest rates get unbelievably low again, and we have these extra incentives, it will create more frenzies, which yes, should again, artificially inflate real estate assets, unfortunately. 